From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. From a court order to restrict how Denver police respond to protesters to use-of-force policy changes when officers respond to calls in the community. Is it enough to ease tensions or just the beginning? We'll ask Denver Police Chief Paul Pazin about reform and next steps. Then, the littlest members of our society, even infants, can get depressed, anxious, and overwhelmed. And those who treat them say COVID-19 has posed some unique challenges. For example, it's hard to do play therapy on a screen. We are still trying to figure out what translates and what does not. What telemedicine means for treating very young children during the pandemic and beyond. Plus, how the pandemic and the protests are reshaping lawmakers' priorities at the state capitol. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Demands to defund the police are increasing across the country, including in Denver. It's a term that's both politically polarizing and emotionally charged. But what does that actually mean? The push for reform and how that takes shape is the next stage in the protests that are starting after the death of George Floyd, who is being laid to rest today. Denver Chief of Police Paul Pazin joins us now. Welcome, Chief Pazin. Uh, Thanks for having us. I'd like to start with Monday night's Denver City Council meeting. The City Council unanimously passed a proclamation declaring that racism is a public health crisis. They also called for an investigation into the Denver police use of force tactics to control crowds. People who signed up to speak during the public comment period called for the police department to be defunded. Here's what one woman said. Reform is not good enough. Body cams are a bandage on a gaping wound. A ban on chokeholds is a hollow promise in the hands of those who treat the rules as optional. Anything less than defunding the police is an insult to the people of Denver, to the memory of George Floyd, and to the thousands impacted daily by the violent police state. That audio, courtesy of Nine News. What is your reaction to that type of comment? Well, uh, first of all, we have to to listen, we have to be open-minded, and we have to be ready for change. And uh, that is something that uh, we need to to hear. These are uncomfortable uh, conversations, but uh, in order for us to to move forward, we have to be willing to to listen to different voices and uh, make sure that we acknowledge uh, and and try, seek to understand uh, the pain uh, of this moment, of this movement, in order to, to do better, to do better as a police department, to do better as a city, and to do better as a community. And there are a lot of conversations about what change could mean and what moving forward could mean. Defunding, we should say, doesn't necessarily mean getting rid of the police department. To the idea of completely reworking the public safety system, Rashawn Bliss is a co-chair of the Denver Justice Project. Here's how he imagines that. It's really about dismantling this modern institution that's got so many of these deep racist roots and imagining new services and systems that respond to all many, all the many different kinds of emergencies um, or public safety issues that we have in the community, but ha- do that in a diversified way that's disconnected from that modern institution of policing. I think that's really important to distinguish police, the individuals, from the institution of policing. I think that it's also reasonable to imagine that policing as we know it as an institution can be abolished while we still retain an emergency response mechanism in our communities that can allow us to deal with something like 
the Aurora Theater shooting. What's your response to that idea? Do you think it's viable to do that kind of overhaul? Uh, I think that uh, we have to look at everything that we do in the police department. We have to re-examine uh, every policy, uh, all of our training uh, programs, how we uh, hire folks, and uh, really how we uh, hold our people accountable and, and the disciplinary system. Um, I also believe that there is uh, an opportunity to explore uh, public health types of, of solutions on public safety types of problems, and we want to continue to move towards uh, that path. Uh, we have some uh, strides, some steps that have been made uh, by having co-responders, mental health clinicians that ride with uh, our officers. We've expanded uh, that program. Uh, we uh, are in the process of hiring case managers as well, so we want to explore alternative response. Uh, if these are, if there are areas where uh, people are in low-level crisis that doesn't need uh, an officer, a uniform, a badge, and a gun that sometimes can uh, trigger uh, an individual in crisis, and, and instead look towards mental health clinicians and, and medical professionals to uh, address those needs, then that's a, a benefit for, for all. And we are very supportive of really looking at things uh, differently using that public health lens on some of these public safety challenges that we have. And another change that the Denver Police Department already made, um, it changed its use of force policy this weekend. The updated policy bans all chokeholds, makes the SWAT unit wear body cameras, requires officers to file a report anytime they point a weapon at someone. These are changes recommended by a use of force advisory board two years ago, according to an email you sent, which was obtained by Denverite. Why make those changes now? So these were uh, ongoing conversations. In fact, uh, one of the representatives brought this up uh, about two weeks ago, and um, we have uh, had the opportunity to, to talk about these. We were looking at uh, data. Uh, we publicly face the, the data on all use of force, and uh, the, the committee was uh, talking about uh, how we can prevent uh, future use of force, particularly in a global pandemic, and it was uh, some of these uh, suggestions were brought up in, in just the last two weeks. Uh, it is it is necessary for us to, to do what we just said. We need to listen. We need to make sure that we're open-minded and then uh, be ready for change. And uh, these things, uh, these uh, policy uh, changes were certainly the right thing to do. Uh, they made sense, and therefore uh, we have uh, changed the policy, uh, put up additional guardrails. We want to uh, make sure that uh, we have guardrails to help uh, keep uh, our community uh, safe. Let's talk about the protests. A federal judge issued a temporary restraining order against the Denver Police Department Friday, restricting police from using projectiles and chemical agents against peaceful protesters. How does this change the way Denver police are approaching demonstrations? So uh, we, uh, first and foremost, are complying with uh, the temporary restraining order, and uh, many of, of the judge's orders uh, are directly aligned with our crowd control and policy regarding use of force. Uh, there must be a command officer now, a lieutenant, that uh, has to witness the destructive or violent behavior uh, before making sure that commands uh, to, to disperse are issued and uh, 
than uh, utilizing uh, these uh, techniques uh, less lethal or, or uh, tear gas in order to uh, disperse a uh, violent or disrupt- disruptive uh, or excuse me destructive uh, crowd. And you say that much of the order is in line with the use of force policy, but Judge R. Brooke Jackson wrote, some of the behavior of what I hope and believe to be a minority of the police officers in Denver and the nation during recent days, not only vis-a-vis persons of color, but against peaceful protesters of all backgrounds, have been disgusting. How do you respond to that characterization of police actions, especially in the first days of the protest? So we will not uh, excuse bad behavior. We will not excuse uh, behavior by uh, our officers that are not aligned with policy and not aligned with our values. And uh, we will uh, hold uh, officers, individual officers, accountable for their actions. And if they violated uh, policy, then uh, we will uh, utilize the the disciplinary matrix, which was uh, helped uh, to be created by uh, the people of Denver community had input both on uh, our use of force policy as well as uh, the disciplinary matrix, which uh, holds people accountable. And uh, additionally, there is the Office of Independent Monitor that reviews each and every uh, disciplinary case. And videos are circulating on social media. They seem to show Denver officers doing things like shoving a photographer toward a fire or firing tear gas or less lethal rounds at protesters who are not violent. You've said you're investigating each video that seems to demonstrate police officers using excessive force against protesters. Can you give me a sense of how many incidents you're investigating? Uh What I can tell you is uh, we are opening formal investigations on every single video that that comes in like that. Uh, Historically, uh, you would need a uh, complainant, uh, the person that was impacted by that, and uh, we're not uh, going to to wait uh, on that process uh, to find a complainant. Uh, We are opening a a formal investigation, again, with uh, the, the... review of the Office of Independent Monitor to make sure that uh, individual actions of of officers are uh, in line with policy. And if they are not, then uh, those individual officers will be held accountable for their actions. Will the results of those investigations be made public? Yes. Uh, In fact, uh, myself, as well as the executive director of public safety, Murphy Robinson, uh, have have sent a letter supporting the city council's request for a thorough and complete uh, investigate or thorough and complete review by the Office of of Independent Monitor. Uh, If there are areas for improvement or if uh, officers violated policy, one, we have to uh, learn how we can uh, improve and, and uh, even more important, we have to hold uh, our people accountable for their actions. Chief Payson, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Paul Payson is Denver Chief of Police. Telemedicine has been a lifeline for some people with physical and mental health problems during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's allowed them to get treatment without potential exposure to the virus. But there's also been a steep learning curve, especially for therapists who help children with severe mental health problems. A video session presents all sorts of challenges with the youngest patients. Shannon Beckman directs Infant and Early Childhood Services at the Mental Health Center of Denver. She spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner. 
Just for my own understanding, how young can a child be to start therapy? And maybe just walk me through some of the challenges right now then of of treating someone of that age at a distance. So we start as young as birth. So we work with caregivers and their young children between the ages of birth to five. So when we work with a little one who has experienced trauma or grief or loss, we're not bringing them back to our office solo, but the work occurs with the caregiver. Very little ones often express themselves through play. And so while we are thankful that we've been able to pivot to telehealth, it does not transmit very easily across the screen. The idea of capturing me and a child and the child playing and what you might observe about all that, is it that you have the caregiver sort of uh, adjusting the camera a lot? What, what, are, what are you asking of them? Yeah. <laughs> so ideally, yes. I mean, in an ideal world, we would have a visual of the child and the caregiver. Um, and I think what we're finding is that sometimes that can happen. And sometimes we are getting a visual of the ceiling. We are getting <laughs> a visual of like the top of somebody's head. Um, but this technology is new for a lot of people. And I think what we are seeing in community mental health, where a lot of the folks that we treat are low income, is that they haven't always had access to devices and to high-speed internet. And so sometimes things are choppy. You know, we're still absolutely trying to get both parent and child on the screen together and to promote play and to promote that relationship. And um, sometimes what that is looking like right now is some sessions are just with the caregiver, with the knowledge that when you support a caregiver and can fill up their cup, then they're able to provide that to their child. Do you think that this is unprecedented for this field, this moment? Yes. And, you know, within the field of infant and early childhood mental health anyway, I think we have gone into telehealth kicking and screaming. (laughs) If it were not for a pandemic, the field would have very, very reluctantly ever gone into telemedicine. And now more than ever, families and young children are experiencing the stress and strain of prolonged isolation, financial insecurity, of potentially losing jobs. And so they need mental health support now more than ever. And so while it is not ideal for this age group, we are making it work. Now, I know that you are considered an essential service. Are you doing anything, you know, in person? Because it occurs to me that like when kids are in foster care, because their biological mm-hmm. parents, you know, maybe are using drugs or suspected of abuse or neglect. Like there are supervised visits with family. I mean, th- that strikes me as something that would still have to happen in person. Yeah. So what we know is that under the stay at home order, all visits between biological parents and children did become virtual. And that was very challenging for both parent and child. You know, children have a pretty limited attention span. And to be able to stay on a screen for a long time is challenging. Infants in particular, they don't really receive much back from a screen. You know, what infants Uh. need is cuddling and holding and rocking. And yet on the parent side of things, these visits are incredibly important. You can imagine that as the parent of an infant or a newborn, if you've had your child taken into foster care, 
and you already have a limited amount of time that you're granted for visitation, which is maybe several hours a week. And now you can't hold your baby, you can't kiss your baby. But as we move further into safer at home and the community is beginning to reintegrate more and more, I think the very youngest of children should be prioritized as the first line of integration. You mentioned the stress just of the pandemic, but we are talking about very young kids who already had underlying mental health issues. Um, so the, those, it strikes me, would just be exacerbated. What what are some of the most common mental health problems that you see in very young children? So common reasons for referral to treatment include things like behavioral problems, so defiance, aggression, little kids that are big worriers. We see depression and we see trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. And is it difficult to recognize, I don't know, something like depression in a child that may not have the words to even express them? Mm -hmm. Very young children really don't have the ability to report on their innermost thoughts and feelings and their intrapsychic conflicts. So if you think about depression in a young child, what that can look like is a lot of sadness and like a lack of desire to play. You know, most kids are very enthusiastic and joyful and ebullient. And when you see a little one that's depressed, there's just sort of this lack of a spark. And it reads as sadness, listlessness, and a lack of interest in playing or enjoying things that most kids typically do. Okay, so it's one thing to kind of master or try to master telemedicine as a technology, but is it actually therapeutic? Are you actually able to make a difference? So I will say that for the field of psychology in general, the data have shown that telehealth interventions are just as effective. Uh For the field of infant mental health, this is unprecedented. We have typically never really offered these interventions through a screen, and so we are still trying to figure out what translates and what does not. What we do know that transmits across the screen is we are able to talk with parents about the importance of routine, being able to help regulate very young children's emotions. So all those things that are dependent on kind of a verbal back and forth with a caregiver, those are all still very effective. The piece that is most difficult to translate is the play-based intervention directly with the child. So I think it remains to be seen what that looks like. It it does strike me that there's going to be so much research that comes out of this moment in time about what Mm -hmm. works and what doesn't and, and kind of analysis of the data. We recently covered the issue of child abuse, how the state hotline is receiving fewer calls. And it's not because counselors think there are fewer incidents, but the children aren't interacting with teachers or other mandatory reporters. And in fact, experts think the stress of job loss and isolation likely means more abuse in the home. Mm -hmm. Are are you trying to suss out signs of that in the families you work with, you know, looking for clues in the background or looking for clues in behavior? Yeah, things like domestic violence and child abuse are hard to fully suss out when you're on telehealth. I think domestic violence in particular is hard when you're providing services. You know, when services are office-based, 
you and your client know who is in your office. You know whether it's a safe, protected, confidential space, and you know whether a violent partner is present or not. On telehealth, it's not always readily apparent if somebody is in the room or if somebody can come in unexpectedly. So our conversations need to be more cautious. We are prepping as best we can to ensure that caregivers are in a safe, confidential space, but that's not always possible when they live with a domestically violent partner. Um, And I think what we're doing in terms of domestic violence and child abuse is trying to, again, not endanger the families that we are working with by having to forthright a conversation, but making sure that they know that we are available to be a safe ear when they are able to have those conversations. That is, what is off screen can be as consequential as what is on screen. Shannon, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Shannon Beckman, a clinical psychologist and director of Infant and Early Childhood Mental Health at the Mental Health Center of Denver. She spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner. When we come back, how the protests and the pandemic are shaping the discussion this legislative session. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Voices are part of the national conversation around race relations, and CPR News is listening. I'm hoping that we can start having those harder conversations that aren't common knowledge to people. Last week, Colorado Matters listening session checked in with Coloradans of different races, sharing their experiences during this moment of unrest and what's not being discussed. They did not see George Floyd as a child of God or as a human being. Is this who we want to be? Find the Colorado Matters listening session wherever you get your podcasts. The legislative session could wrap up this week after it was disrupted first by the pandemic and then by the protests. And both have changed the scope and focus of what lawmakers are now dealing with. We're going to hear from the Purplish team, public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny and Binta Berglund. They're joined by Erica Meltzer, bureau chief for the education news service Chalkbeat Colorado. We have got two big topics today. And as you can guess, one of them is education, education funding especially and the debate that's brewing over school budgets. We're still in this historic legislative session, which has been completely changed because of COVID-19 and the restrictions in place there. That's what lawmakers were grappling with. And then in the middle of the session, it's changing yet again in the face of protests against racial injustice. And a lot of the protests are starting just outside the Capitol. It really is changing the face of the legislative session. You're walking in to the building, uh, past graffiti all across the base of the Capitol with all kinds of messages. Some of the monuments around the Capitol have been marked or defaced in different ways. Just hearing chants and shouts outside throughout the session really does lend a different kind of air and, and underlines a bit of the importance of the work that they do inside the building. I have two kids at home, um, and and so I've just been monitoring everything remotely, which is weird. It's a weird way to cover a legislative session. And I'm also a former cops reporter, and it feels really weird to be watching this absolutely historic kind of protest unfold and to not be there and to just be watching it largely on my Twitter feed. I've been spending most of my time working remote as well. And I got to say, on the days that I go into the Capitol, I feel great and invigorated for like an hour. And then I just start to feel kind of like skeezy because that building uh, has so many different surfaces and and 
so many different ways to uh, transmit disease. So uh, it's a mixed bag being out there, Erica. One interesting procedural change I've noticed is that the process is changing how lawmakers debate bills inside the building. Typically at the end of the session, and especially when things like the budget are going through, we are accustomed to covering very late debates. Two, three in the morning. And that hasn't happened so far. Lawmakers are making sure to leave the Capitol building before it gets really late. They don't have their cars parked in the circle of the Capitol because the Senate president's truck was destroyed. And so they're parking a little bit offsite. They're leaving so much earlier and the debates are wrapping up. And I, I expect that to continue. And there was an interesting exchange um, at the end of second reading of the budget where it was about five o'clock and one of the Republican lawmakers said, hey, I've talked to state police. They say they can't guarantee our safety once we leave the building. If people wow. want to gather in groups, we can we can sort of hustle off to our cars together. Huh. And then uh, Alec Garnett, who's the Democratic majority leader from Denver, stood up and said, hey, I've also talked to the state police. Right now, everything's peaceful outside. You don't need to be worried. And then someone else, I actually couldn't recognize who it was behind their mask, but another a Democratic lawmakers stood up and said, also, if you want to gather in groups, we can also go out and join the protest. And so I think it really demonstrates that different perceptions of of what is happening outside the building. One of the bills we're talking about, actually, it's a sweeping police accountability measure. Democratic Senate President Leroy Garcia and Democratic Representative Leslie Harrod are two of the main sponsors Herod held a rally outside the Capitol the day before it was introduced. Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter! This bill would actually do a lot if it were to pass. It would strip some of the legal immunity that police officers have from lawsuits and kind of civil action, although the state could backstop them and, and cover some of that. And it could also ban officers from using chokeholds, including the kind that was used in the death of George Floyd. It's worth noting that every Democrat in the legislature is listed as a co-sponsor. That's pretty big, especially for such a, a sweeping piece of policy. There's a lot of variation around the country in what's allowed in mm. police departments' use of force policies. And there is evidence that banning specific things that are particularly risky, including chokeholds, really can have a dif- make a difference in how many people die at police hands. I think there was a lot of hope when body cam technology first became widespread that this was going to be the answer. What we have found is it really doesn't reduce police violence. And mm. we certainly have a lot of evidence of police, let's say not being inhibited by the fact that they were being recorded. Mm. We also have cases where police officers uh, turn off their body cameras. And so it does provide that piece of evidence. It, it can be important, but it hasn't been the game changer that I think a lot of people thought it would be. You know, the natural result of these protests is going to be state legislatures and cities looking at this list of different policies. And maybe Colorado will end up having kind of a role in how that platform evolves nationally. Yeah, I haven't necessarily seen other states respond as quickly with policy proposals, and so uh, I think I think that is interesting. I certainly um, I certainly don't think anyone's holding their breath for Congress to do something meaningful on the federal level. Benta, what are you hearing around the state house about this bill? To Erica's point, a lot of states aren't in session right now. We just happen to be back at the legislature, so huh. Democrats who hold the majority in both chambers see this as an urgent issue they want to take action on. And now I've talked to some Republicans in the Senate who say they do support a lot of things in the bill and they want to come to the table 
They do not want this to be a partisan bill on an issue this important at this moment in time. They support things like repealing the chokeholds and including requiring all police departments to have body cameras. And then there's another provision in the bill that would create this uniform list and criteria for how to keep records on police and officer misconduct. So providing more transparency. And it sounds like there's also some Senate Republican support for this provision that would require a police officer to intervene if they witness another officer using excessive force, which arguably is what happened with the three other officers who watched this officer in Minneapolis kneeling on George Floyd's neck. This really does feel to me like a different moment in that you have people who maybe in other situations would maybe defend the police officer's actions or feel that it was a very complicated situation. It seems that that people from a very wide range of political perspectives look at what happened to George Floyd and it feels very unambiguous to them that that this was wrong. In terms of the session, we all know that these problems, of course, predate this this particular death. These mm. problems have been happening for a long time. This feels like the kind of bill that if it had been introduced in the beginning of the session and we didn't have these protests, this is the kind of bill that they would have tabled to focus on the pandemic legislation. We've seen Mm. a a ton of really important bills to the Democrats be set aside so that they can get through this abbreviated session. But because of the level of protest, this is now an emergency on the same level as the pandemic. Wow, Mm. that's a great point. Yeah. And it it feels like this would have been one of like the key pillars of discussion for an entire session in a a more typical session. Let's talk now about the other big thing that lawmakers just have to get done. That is the state budget. And more specifically, we're going to talk about the education, the K-12 funding, in it, which is going to be one of the biggest parts of this conversation. And I'm really glad that we have Erica here to discuss it with us. Erica, how long have you been at Chalkbeat covering Colorado schools now? About two and a half years now. And just to speak to the complexity of this issue, I, I sort of feel like it's in the last year that I've started to have a better grasp of it. Erica and I both sat virtually through hours of joint budget committee hearings where they planned out the whole budget, and it felt like they talked about every other topic before they got to K-12 education, pensions and state tourism funding and uh, potential pay cuts for state employees, until at last they really had to make a decision about how much money they were going to give and how much money they were going to cut for K-12 schools. And... It really finally came to this this almost anticlimactic moment where Senator Dominic Moreno read out the number that represented the total recommended spending for K twelve schools. Three billion nine hundred and sixty five million eight hundred and eighty one thousand four hundred and nineteen dollars. That might sound like a big number. But it's a lot less than the state spent in this fiscal year. It's a lot less than they were planning to spend just a few months ago on the next fiscal year. So this represents a cut of about $724 million. 
some of that is going to be offset by some cuts they made in another place. But this is an amount that we haven't seen since the Great Recession. So it's a potentially really substantial impact on schools. Erica, education funding makes up a large part of the state's discretionary budgeting. Do you think educators and schools were anticipating cuts this deep? I think, you know, the CFOs and the people who spend all day in the numbers knew it could be this bad. But I think in the general public, and especially among sort of your rank and file teachers, I think there was a lot of shock at this number, thinking, how can they do this to us? People in the education world feel that education is chronically underfunded in Colorado. At the same time, it takes up a huge percentage of the general fund and is really crowding out a lot of other things that are also very important. I mean, a lot of human services that the state provides also took a cut in this budget process. Um, Higher ed took a huge cut. Um, So K-12 takes up 36% of the general fund. And the general fund, they're anticipating a 25% hit to it from this coronavirus downturn. And so you can see how the math isn't working out there. I mean, at the end of the day, there's not a lot of other great places to find $577 million. And that kind of takes us right to the big question, which is where are they going to find it? Moreno said that as soon as he read that number, that big 10-digit number, his phone was just flooded with these text messages and questions. So what do we know about this cut and how it will actually play out? So there's still a lot of open questions about this. One thing to understand is that this cut could actually get larger. There's a bunch of pieces of legislation that also have to pass to balance the budget. And so if some of these other budget cutting bills don't pass, they're going to have to come back. And there's really only two places left to take it, either from K-12 or to reduce the reserves even further. There's also the impact of the Federal CARES Act money. Governor Polis gave a half a billion of that federal money to schools. Originally, it appeared that the the federal dollars had to go directly to COVID-19 related expenses. Does that offset some of the budget cuts? So Governor Polis announced this allocation from the state's CARES Act money in the middle of the budget process, and it caught a lot of people off guard. This is a very large amount of money that I don't think most people were thinking was likely to go to education. And technically, legally speaking, it's not an offset. The state budget process is separate. In practical terms, it gives districts a pot of money that is almost equivalent to what they could be losing at the state level. But it does come with a bunch of restrictions. It does have to be used for things that somehow tie back to COVID. But Polis and his executive order worded this pretty broadly, and his intent was to give a lot of flexibility to districts. Some of the uses include facilitating distance learning, facilitating social distancing when students are in school, Um, mitigating lost learning, provision of economic support in connection with the emergency to stimulate the economy by supporting Colorado's workforce by increasing free instructional hours. So he's he's explicitly connecting the return to school with the economic recovery. These kids are going to be workers one day. Yes. Um, And also their parents can go back to work if they're in school. That's true. But a lot of districts, they're very grateful for the money. At the same time, some of them are concerned 
for example, can you just pay a teacher's salary with this money? They're not sure. <laughs> and it also has to be used by the end of the calendar year. Whereas, of course, just like the state, the districts operate on a fiscal year that starts July 1. And so there's some accounting challenges as well that they have to front load this money. I think there is some anxiety of, are we really going to be able to use this in as open a way as has been presented? It also sets up a long-term issue because, of course, we're not expecting a magical economic recovery. And so districts are concerned that if the state has cut this much this year, that then becomes the starting point for mm. the, the next fiscal year. And we're not expecting another big pot of federal money for the 21-22 fiscal year. And so there's that concern as well that legislators are sort of letting their consciences be relieved that they're making <laughs> these big cuts at the state level but it's okay because they have this other pot of money. But what happens next year? That's Erica Meltzer, bureau chief for the education news service Chalkbeat Colorado. She joined CPR public affairs reporters Binta Berkland and Andrew Kinney on Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. You can hear Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's one thing to keep a business going during the pandemic, Imagine starting one. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Being member-supported carries a responsibility that we at Colorado Public Radio take seriously. The fact that we're funded by our listeners motivates me every day. Coming from a commercial existence, there's pressures that go with working in a commercial setting that I found kind of evaporated when I came over to the public side. I'm membership director Jason Moore. CPR is here because of members who invest in all that we do. Thank you for your generosity. As hard as it may be for a small business to survive the pandemic, imagine the uncertainty of starting one right now. CPR's Dan Boyce has the story of a downtown Colorado Springs boutique that's up for the challenge. I'm a little nervous. Uh, Joey said earlier that she could feel it radiating off of me. 26-year-old Rebecca Moon is minutes away from her grand opening. I'm proprietor and owner of Moonbeam Clothiers. Moonbeam Clothiers. And it's been my dream for five plus years. It's a small storefront, one long, narrow room, 500 square feet. Got some menswear denim over here. With a carefully curated selection of high-end, ethically sourced garments. All their labels are hunted leather. Got some leggings made from recycled bottles. And mixed in on the racks. This piece is mine. I made these here. Her own fashion designs. So this is a bamboo little black dress. That's her real passion. I wear this dress all the time. I think it's really fun because you can dress it up or dress it down. Appetizer trays have been set out. The champagne is open. And her parents and friend Joey are behind the checkout counter looking so proud. I think Rebecca is one of the bravest young ladies that I know. Her mom, Terry. And here come some folks right now. This is great. First customers. People quickly fill the little shop, 10 at a time. Rebecca obviously has a lot of support. Still, she is nervous. And let's put those grand opening jitters in the context of COVID-19. This event is happening May 29th, just over a week ago. When were you originally thinking you were going to open? March 20th. Ouch. She had been saving for years from her jobs as a server and bartender. Then, just a few days before that planned opening in March... I was sitting in my garage with my boyfriend building these shelves, watching all the news roll in, and they closed down all the restaurants. And I was just like, okay, this, isn't, this is not going to happen. 
That same day, she was laid off from her bartending job. A two-month holding pattern, eating through those savings. I have a very small cushion. <laughs> and honestly, things like credit cards and like loan payments being frozen for a little bit right now are really helpful. Because if I was paying everything in cash up front, then I'd be in a really tight spot, I think. Cheers. Rebecca is mingling with the opening night customers, glass of pink champagne in hand, red lipstick matching her chic red blouse. Meanwhile, I approach her friend Joey Osgard at the sales counter. Do you think she still seems nervous right now? Yeah, definitely. Tell me why. Um, just because I know her and her energy isn't at the regular frequency that she vibes at. <laughs> Joey says you can see it in her body language and her posture a bit. Hey, who wouldn't be nervous right now, even in the best of circumstances? This is a real culmination for Rebecca. Her mom, Terry, says when she was about six, Rebecca set up a little store in the basement. And sold, like, whatever she had that she thought she could get us to buy. <laughs> Back to you, yes. the people who presumably gave her this stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, we just knew really from a pretty young age that Rebecca was a real entrepreneur. She had that entrepreneur spirit. I stopped by Moonbeam Clothiers again the following Tuesday. Rebecca says she made enough on opening night to pay the store's lease for this first month. That's a start. Yet when I ask her about the company's future, she's more than nervous. She's scared. Um, on a scale of 1 to 10, like a 7? <laughs> it's pretty scared. Pretty scared. <laughs> During my visit, she's working on a custom sewing project, an order of 300 cloth face masks for local restaurants. The ones I see are covered in flamingos. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. Dan will be following up with Rebecca Moon and her clothing shop in the coming months to hear how she fares as we continue to track how the coronavirus pandemic is hitting Colorado's economy. If this were a normal year, this is what it might sound like at Coors Field. High fly ball, deep left field, way back. Oh, Rockies win! How do you like that? The pandemic has kept Major League Baseball in the dugout this season. Talks continue this week about starting to play again, but so far there's no agreement to do that. In the meantime, what have Colorado Rockies players been doing to stay busy? Here's CPR's Vic Vela. Like a lot of people during quarantine, Rockies pitcher Scott Oberg has some time on his hands. He and his wife have been watching all the Star Wars movies from start to finish. That is when he can wrangle the remote control from his two-year-old daughter's hands. She's been on a Mickey Mouse uh, kick right now, so, you know, nothing but Disney Junior. While you two prepare the crust, we'll pick the apples. It'll be easy as pie. <laughs> the more we let her play around with the remote, the more she figures out how to use it. So she actually bought an episode yesterday. <laughs> My wife's like, please don't be mad. She bought, a, she bought an episode. I'm like, that's okay. It's amazing. How did she do that? Yeah, two-year-olds are a lot of work. Maybe Oberg's teammate Ryan McMahon can calm her down a little bit by reading her a story. Is your mama a llama? I asked my friend Fred. No, she is not, is what Freddie said. She has a long neck, white feathers and wings. I don't think a llama has all of those things. Oh, I said, 
You don't need that's to go McMahon on. reading. Is your mama, mama a llama? A children's book he recited recently for the Denver Public Library's Storyline, which may have caused McMahon more anxiety than being down in the count with the tying run on third base. Man, I'll tell you what I had. So I was I was really nervous to read it, honestly, um, because there's some tongue twisters in there. So, but when I finally when I finally called in to do the do the reading for the library, I I got it pretty good. So I was I was pretty happy with the results. She grazes on grass and she likes to say moo. I don't think that is what a llama would do. Star Wars, two-year-olds ordering stuff on TV, and llamas. These are just a few of the things that have been keeping Rockies players busy at a time when they normally would be traveling around North America playing baseball. That's something McMahon misses a lot. Oh, man, so much. So much. I I have, like, this blocked-off area where I'm allowed to take full swings in the house and stuff like that, and I'm just... Oh, man, I'm itching to get back out there. Rockies manager Bud Black has made the most of his newly found free time this spring. He's done work with a charity that gives away art therapy books to kids in hospitals. And while that's rewarding, Black says he misses being in the dugout. But he says he's optimistic that baseball will indeed be back this summer. I think guys are are gearing up again for, uh, you know, something to happen here within the next few weeks. I think, you know, there's still some things to be done as far as, uh, you know, how we're going to do this, right, between the, uh, you know, the players and the commissioner's office and how that all looks. But, uh, you know, I sense some momentum and a, and a pretty good vibe from, from baseball. And by baseball, Black means Major League Baseball officials, who right now are in talks with the players' union to try to come to an agreement to start the season in some form this summer. Right now, it looks like that shortened season could start in July, but a firm plan needs to be ironed out first. Oberg represents the Rockies in the Players' Union. He says whatever plan the league proposes, safety will be at the top of the list. Oberg is open about his battle with an autoimmune disease, so he's especially vigilant when it comes to COVID-19. You know, the tricky thing is, is that there's only so much information we actually have with this, with this disease, just from, you know, a medical standpoint where, you know, we're still trying to figure out how you know, how it affects certain people. And, and, you know, we have a broad base just outside of the players themselves. You know, we have coaches, we have umpires, we have media members, we have training staff, we have, you know, a lot of people that are involved in the game, you know, just outside of the players. So it's, it's not even a matter of keeping the players safe. It's a, it's a matter of keeping everybody safe. One of the challenges players face is staying mentally and physically ready for a season that doesn't have a start date yet. As Bud Black points out, Baseball players are creatures of habit. Well, you know, what's what's tough about it is that, you know, we've always known in the history of our game, you know, dates, right? Spring training starts February 12th. The all-star break is this. We play the Dodgers this day. I mean, there's always dates. The The thing is just the uncertainty is uh, of, of how much to train, how much to hit, how much to throw. When the league does decide on a start date, Black expects players to get about three weeks of spring training before they have to play real games. And he thinks his team will be ready despite the uncertainty right now. But the game could look a lot different when play resumes. For one, ballparks, which sound a lot like this during normal seasons, may sound more like this. Jones will whack the son of a gun to center field. That's very deep. It's deep, and it's off the base of the wall. He will yeah, the there's a good chance games will be played without fans when the season starts. 
Ryan McMahon says that's going to take some getting used to. I'll tell you what, man, those, those dog days in August and July and September when you're exhausted, you know, you, you rely on the fans to kind of bring the energy and you kind of build off that. And that honestly, man, that kind of gets you through the game. So uh, it's, it's definitely going to be interesting. Until baseball resumes, the Rockies remain in limbo. And that's tough for a team that's looking for redemption this year. Let's back up a bit to October 2018. Now it's time! The Colorado Rockies have gone on the road and defeated the Cubs to move on to the division series. Scott Oberg threw that game-winning pitch in Chicago to win a thrilling wildcard playoff game against the Cubs. The Rockies also made the postseason the year before. But 2019 was a brutal year for the team. Scott Oberg. Yeah, absolutely. I think from a from a team morale standpoint, it was definitely tough to to not be able to get to where we want to get to. A lot of things didn't go the way we wanted it to last year, especially on a, a pitching end of things, you know, top to bottom from the starters to the relievers. So, you know, I think a lot of guys are really focused, really, really looking forward to the start of this 2020 season and um, trying to put 2019 behind us. Bud Black believes his team can bounce back and become a playoff contender again this season, if and when there is a season. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill.